0: So, all right, welcome back to our class on Proverbs. We're going to be in chapter 19, and I was just informed, verse 13, which is great. That's the beginning of a new section. All of this kind of tenuously put forward. Uh, The linguistic demarker, a foolish son, marking the new section, and this would be very similar to the previous section. This one, uh, Steinman in his uh, commentary, uh, calls it a foolish son dealing with fools and foolishness. Well, before we get into this section, let's have an invocation prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for ever and ever. Amen. All right. So since thirteen is the start of a new section, we can just pick up right there. A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarrelling is a continual dripping of rain. Well, sometimes I have uh, said, oh, thank you so much. Grace comes in many forms. All right, yeah, chapter 19, verse 13, a foolish son. So, so this is an interesting verse, and of course, you see an example of this, that uh, the scriptures are written, of course, proverbs is written it's kind of disseminated the prophets the teachers would have received this and taught it to the people Um, and specifically they would have taught it to the fathers the husbands the heads of household and the heads of household would have further taught it to their families so you have in place here this idea of a family unit And that's what's missing when people accuse the Bible of being sexist. Why does it always talk about to the man, about the man, for the man? It's not sexist. It's just that the family unit has been disintegrated into individuals in our culture. And now it does look biased because why isn't he dressing all the different individuals? But you see, if the family unit is intact, as it is much throughout the globe and the entirety of history up to these bizarre times, then it makes absolute sense to talk first and foremost to the male, to the head of the household, that he disseminates that then through his family. You see here then, uh, a problem with foolishness is not just that it hurts oneself, but of course a foolish son is ruin to his father. The ultimate foolishness in view is the foolishness of unbelief and the foolishness of walking contrary to the ways of God. Ruin's a dynamic word and invites a lot of thought in itself. Financial ruin, sure. Ruin of reputation, right. Ruin of sense of my life's work, (laughs) Was to, raise, was to raise godly children and here they're ungodly and foolish. Um, so this sense of ruin and again if, if this were to break the, the spirit, break the heart as we would commonly say of the father, we talked about that in a preceding proverb, that can only be mended by returning to the Lord and receiving his fatherly healing of that wound. A wife's quarreling um, contention would certainly be this idea so um, this is kind of a baked-in part of the curse. We're not really allowed to talk about this because of feminism, but now that we all know that feminism is a heresy, we're free to talk about it again, and free to speak exactly as the Bible speaks. So, um, contentious. Remember in the... Well, let's go to Genesis. You should, we should look at this, because this, this is really worthwhile, especially in our times of confusion. I don't want to assume that anyone knows this. Um, let's go to Genesis 3. And I know this is familiar and well-worn. I hope it's not... hope to present this to you in a way that doesn't put you to sleep just because of your your familiarity with it. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 3... Now if we pick up around verse uh, 14, what you're going to see is, of course, they have both now eaten of the fruit that God forbade them to eat. And they've also kind of done the blame game. God goes first to the man. Why does he go first to the man? He's the head of the family unit, even from the start. So he's answerable. And, of course, if you just backtrack your eye to verse 12, God goes to the man, and the man says, The woman whom you gave to be with me. Which is great, because he simultaneously blames God and wife. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. She has her blame, too. Okay, then God God begins with the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here's Here's the key verse to key into. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now we see an offspring, a kind of multiplicity, but also then in the language, the grammar itself, a singularity. He. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head, bruise his head. And in that very act, the serpent will bruise his heel. Now, from a heel wound, you recover. From a head wound, you don't. But there's mutual combat and there's mutual suffering there. And of course, what you see here is the proto-evangelium, the first preaching of the gospel. It's actually preached directly to Satan in earshot of Adam and Eve. And you can see within that proto-evangelium, the preaching of the gospel, the first preaching of the gospel, there is already within it suffering, suffering, and victory through that suffering. There's a kind of shadow even of the resurrection. Because if one gets bit by a serpent, bitten the heel by a serpent, you're going to be laid up for a few days. You're going to be on your back for a few days recovering, but you'll rise again. The serpent that has its head crushed not so much. Now you can satisfy your curiosities with YouTube videos or just let the algorithm feed them to you ultimately, but if you've ever seen a, a snake with its head cut off or its head crushed by a rock, is it just all still? Not at first. It's thrashing around more violently than before. That's We are in the death throes of the serpent. His head has been crushed in by the cross of Jesus. His head has been crushed and we're in the death throes. That's why it's more violent than before and um, more tumultuous than before but don't let that deceive you it's not as though he's getting stronger as though he's winning he's already in effect lost and we're just waiting for the finality of that so serpents thrashing around just to put it very clearly in biblical terms he knows his time is short He's, he's already lost his grip on heaven and could not prevail in that realm on account of the ascension of Jesus this is all Revelation 12 And he knows he's not going to be able to withstand Jesus and the saints on the last day when it's time to kick them out of the earthly realm. So he knows his time is short. So he's thrashing around, doing as much damage as he can in the meantime. Okay, so we also see here that the good news for us is absolutely bad news for the devil. And those two things, you can't have one without the other. So, without the devil being destroyed, we have no life and salvation. So, his defeat is our victory, and our victory is his defeat. And you have to see it as such. Okay, now, turning attention, because that isn't our primary purpose, otherwise I'd go on for even longer, but 16, now, to the woman, so you can see how he starts with Adam, the head. He blames God and the woman. The woman blames the serpent. God says, okay, serpent, here's what you get. And now he's going to go back up. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Now, that can sound as though it's um, merely the act of bearing children, m- merely the labor, but that's not the case. The words broad enough, your child rearing, your child raising, the whole thing will be punctuated with a kind of painfulness. I know some of you mothers, when you, when you see your child uh, drive off to college or move out of the house, it's a kind of death and a kind of pain, is it not? Not really something anyone looks forward to. I've made that mistake a couple of times. Like, oh, James is turning nine when he turned nine. Great, he's halfway there. My wife didn't share that sentiment. (laughs) Oh, thankfully she's gracious. So the multiplying of pain in childbearing... In pain shall you bring forth children. Again, that those parallel phrases have within them this sense of uh, difficulty, painfulness, sorrow in the whole process. Whereas before there wasn't. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So how is the woman affected by sin and what is the curse well it's twofold and it attacks her two primary vocations as wife and as mother that's what the curse attacks so first as mother in the ways we've just stated that becomes what was just going to become blessing and wonderful and just joy now is mingled with sorrow and suffering and pain i mean it's not, the joy is still there obviously And then likewise, the joy of husband and wife is still there, but mingled along with this is all kinds of quarrel and contention and difficulty. Now, the word here, desire, is where everyone goes astray. Your desire shall be for your husband, as if this is somehow sexual in nature. It's just not borne out by anything, least of all the text. In context, we want to always read scripture in context scripture interprets scripture where else is this word desire used in the immediate context over in chapter 4 Cain and Abel chapter 4 verse 1 and of course just to in a general sense familiarize yourself with this um Cain, the firstborn son, brings to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, the secondborn, brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire. Same word. It's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So look at the desire and rule and the desire and rule. Desire and rule in chapter 4, verse 7 and desire and rule in chapter 3, verse 16. What is the nature of sin's desire for Cain? To overtake him, possess him, and control him. Which it does. He does not heed the word of the Lord, the warning of the Lord. He allows himself to be overcome and possessed by sin and thus he ends up murdering his brother. So Then what are we to infer from 16? That marriage is tainted in the curse in exactly this way. And again, this is kind of like just more broadly and generally stated under the battle of the sexes. Why is there a battle? This is completely stupid. It's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Battle of the sexes. Um, But it's there. Generally and specifically in marriage, The dynamic of the curse, and you can see how this curse also befalls the husband, by the way, but this curse, your desire shall be for your husband, isn't anything pleasant. Your desire is going to be to overtake control, and you be the head, not him. it's going to bear itself out further, so if you're not yet convinced, which I think you should be, it's sufficient, but if you're not yet convinced, just wait, because it gets even more clear. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Which, do you think that that's what a husband Gosh, I can't, you know, a little boy He's like, ah, sees his family growing up It's all happy, "Ah, I can't wait to get a wife And rule over her No one ever wants that No, No man ever wants to Rule over his wife No man ever wants his wife To contend with him in such a way That he has to Lay down the law, raise his voice Make his point known, whatever Rule over her so you can see how this is duly cursed. Then, no man wants to rule his wife, and yet he must on account of her contention. So I'll just give you an example of this. And I, you know, if it's offensive, well, we're all offended by the law of God. Okay. So nagging is exactly the kind of contention that is common, because it's do this, do this, do this, do this. Which of course, like you've ar- the information's been transmitted. What is the point of repeating it over and over and over again? Ultimately, it's to assert one's will and control over one's husband. That's, that's what it is. If, if that's like too much, the emperor has no clothes, I apologize. I'm still young enough to be counted naive enough to just say it as it is. So then, the husband has to rule over that. And sometimes his ruling over that is precisely his turning up the football game, or not paying attention, or saying, "You know, that's the fifteenth time you've asked me that just today." I think I'll get around to it when I get around to it. So this is a kind of ugliness that exists between husband and wife, and it's a battle over headship. And you can trace that back to the root that, um, well, no, let's not. Let's let the Bible do it. So. Once more, end of 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then 17, and to Adam he said, now what is Adam's sin? Adam did not listen to the serpent. Adam was not deceived by the serpent. Here is Adam's sin according to God. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I, I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Okay, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, there's more there and we can go into that. But I want you to just see the difference. Eve has the voice of her husband who told her what God said. You shall not eat of it. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. She listens to the serpent. She is deceived and listens to the serpent. Adam heard directly from God, You shall not eat of it. He listens to his wife. That's just what the words on the page say. So the nature of their sins is profoundly different why St. Paul will write that man was not deceived, Adam was not deceived, the woman was deceived, but not the man. Which in some places, I mean in some sense, implicates the man all the more. But the nature of this relationship between husband and wife, between parents and children, is rendered very challenging, very difficult, indeed cursed, uh, in this section. Adam's chief sin is that he should have listened to God rather than his wife. He violated the order of creation. Now, St. Paul goes on to say this in so many words in uh, 1 Corinthians. So I'm going to paraphrase. I'm going to kind of unwrap it linguistically. He's got it woven together very beautifully, and I'm going to kind of unweave it and just put it plainly. The head of woman is man. The head of man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, if you don't believe me. So when Adam listens to his wife instead of listening to God or listening to Christ, it is a subversion of the order of creation. When Eve listens to the serpent instead of to her husband, it's an equal subversion of creation. She's choosing to have the serpent as her head. Well, I think that's going too far. Oh, do you? So go back with me. Sorry, these are the kinds of conversations I have with me, myself in the shower. Um, <laughs> so go back, to, uh, go back to 15. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you, God says to the serpent, and the man... Why not the man? Because the man isn't nearly as directly involved as the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, Where does the Old Testament teach about the Antichrist, of which the New Testament is so filled? Well, here's the start. Because the corresponding offspring, singular of the serpent, and offspring singular of the woman, Christ and Antichrist. Now there's a plurality there, so there's Antichrists, just as there are small c Christs. But look, it's the woman versus the serpent. That's the first part enmity between you and the woman, and the second part between your offspring and her offspring. Now, that will tell you why now in these latter days, the full assault of the serpent is on women. And everything flows from that. So there's, look, it's like a diamond. You could pick any facet. Okay. And they're all true. They all lead to the same place. But you can see the devil's rage against woman in both of the curses that got so childbearing. Oh, it's, it's painful to raise children. It's expensive to raise children. Why don't you just off them? So this hatred of women and hatred of her offspring is a perpetual hatred. Now, of course, we know, how this, we know how closely this is associated with Christ. It's going to be the offspring of a woman, namely Christ himself, who crushes the serpent's head. Luther is so great on this point, because he says from this moment on, all the way back in Genesis, God puts the serpent in subjection to the woman, especially the pregnant woman. Because every pregnant, woman, every pregnant Jewish woman could bear his doom. Now, you might have to be a little creative, but think how that would be if you were the devil. Humiliating and infuriating, and all you would want to do is destroy women and destroy their offspring. And you would set about doing that above and all else, beyond all else. Now, what's going to stand in your way? Well, ideally, a man, and a man whose head is Christ. That's who's going to stand in Satan's way. So he's going to attack men in order to further destroy women. He's going to attack women in such a way that they, uh, I mean, in our present day, let me just speak, like this is the nature of the attack. He says to a woman, in order to have any value, you have to be a man. That's feminism in a nutshell. In order to have any value, you have to be a man. If you can't do everything a man can do, then you don't have value. That's misogyny. That's not feminism. That's hatred of the feminine. The feminine, listen to it again. The feminine has no value. To be a woman has no value. The only way you have value is if the feminine can become masculine. If the woman can act and do as a man. That's misogyny at the deepest level. Hatred of Woman at the deepest level. I mean, far from being a misogynist, St. Paul is elevating, saying this is the creation and office and glory that God has given to woman. In fact, St. Paul says that woman is the glory of man. There's no misogyny there. It's quite the opposite. It's the devil who says that God's word is misogynistic. Meanwhile, he's deceiving everyone with the true misogyny, feminism. All right, so the devil hates women. He hates the family. He wants to subvert the office of the father precisely so that he can get to the women and the children. I've probably overdone it, but that narrative, if that doesn't make sense to you and spell out exactly what's going on in our society, I'm not sure I can help you. You've got to have one of those moments where the scales fall from your eyes. That's not my business, but God's. Uh, Because that's exactly what's going on. It's a way to make sense of why the devil so rages against women. Why, and this isn't my original quote, but why abortion is the antichrist sacrament. Why the family is the target. Okay. We could go on, but let's not. Yeah, I see a hand in the back. You can have me stoned after the question if you'd like. <laughs> That's a joke. Oh, I didn't I, I was just confused as to what kind of stoning we were talking <laughs> no, about here. It's no, like, for <laughs> the blasphemy, you can take me out and I have don't these. know of any dispensaries around <laughs> okay. here. Yeah, okay. Um what if, what if and I've always wondered this, what if Adam at that moment in time when he's holding an apple looking at it and going, you know, I know I shouldn't Eat the apple. But what is going to happen to Eve if I don't? What, mm-hmm. Do I want her to go through that alone? Uh, or would I rather be with her? Would I rather be with her in that pain? Yeah. Um, there, there are church fathers who speculated similarly that, that, that it was kind of this noble, noble and in quotes, uh, desire that she had fallen and he was going to follow her into that fall. Even if so, in that moment of love, who does he love more, God or wife? That would be the idolatrous love of wife that says, hey, you've fallen into rebellion. Do I love God more or you? You know, and I mean, again, while we're on hypotheticals, what if he said, when God came in the cool of the day, what if Adam met him face on while Eve was cowering in the bushes, and Adam was her mediator as Christ is mediator of the church? What if Adam stood there and said, have mercy? Might be a whole different world. Might be a whole different world. Yeah, so even if we entertain that, um, oh, and like, yeah, this would be the point then. This would be the point that um, men on account of the fall, look at this. So we men have to understand this. This. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, we we are by nature now turned toward viewing our wife as an authority that she has no business having. The man of God has his authority in Christ. Full stop. The wife is not a child, but she's not a co-husband. She's right between the two, Can you listen to her, take her advice and Christian wisdom into account? Can you ask for her opinion? Can you lift her up and celebrate her wisdom? Let her know where she got something right and you got something wrong? Of course, all of those things. You should do those same things with your children, by the way. (laughs) And with all people. So, no, we're not doing any kind of like... uh, you know, ham-fisted dictatorship or any nonsense like this. Uh, husbands are called to have as their sole authority Christ. And in that sense, it t- comes to terms like marching orders. I get those from Jesus, not from you, and I'm going to keep that straight precisely because I love you and love you in the proper order. If I turn to where you're now my Christ and I'm listening to you, I've simultaneously lost the true Christ. I'm no longer listening to God, I'm listening to the woman. However godly she may be, that's not the proper ordering. So then, men, what is the great challenge? The great challenge is the world has been indoctrinating us through TV shows and sitcoms and Disney episodes and Prince Charming and romanticism and all this other stuff that your, and and I I completely fault the church in America for this too, because dying to Christ really translated in American evangelicalism means doing what your wife wants you to do. Like, oh, I'm going to die to myself in Christ, which means I'm going to uh, set aside my opinion for your opinion. How can that possibly be what it means? As if the order of creation is subverted by this other teaching of Scripture. So, what does it actually mean in our context to die to yourself in your marriage as a male? Yourself wants to be Prince Charming. Yourself wants to be the yes man. Yourself wants to put the wife on the pedestal. Yourself wants to have her as your lord, her as your queen rather than God as your king. Dying to yourself looks completely the opposite of what the church has taught us and completely the opposite of what the culture has taught us. Dying to yourself means unilaterally lining yourself up to Christ and saying, you're my fulfillment, you're my head, you're my... If we're going to talk in the language of soulmates, you, Christ, are my soulmate. Now, everything flows from that reality. My proper and balanced love for my wife and children flow from that reality. But I will not commit idolatry by loving my wife more than you, and I will not commit idolatry by loving my children more than you. Now Jesus has a far more blunt and offensive way of teaching these things than I do. He simply says, whoever does not hate mother or father, husband or wife or children is not worthy of me. I mean, what is he doing with that astonishing statement? Well, In the first place, he's slapping us with a huge dose of sanity and how delusional in sin we are. Because to have a God means that everything else is subordinated to that God. To have a God who gives us an order of creation means that everything must be conformed to that divine order of creation. So, yes, you know as a as a male your commitment is to christ and only secondarily to your family and it's one of authority and provision and protection to your family now those are the vocations of husband um, protection and provision that's what a husband does so just as we said a, a woman is now a wife and a mother a husband is a protector and a provider. Just as we saw, the curse befalls the two primary vocations of woman. She's now, uh, her marriage, marital relation is cursed, and her relationship with her children is cursed. Now the man in his providing and protecting is cursed. And that's exactly what flows next. So in 17, and then we'll probably be done with this, but look, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. So how's the provision going to go? It's going to be cursed. Primary vocation of being able to make bread and provide it for your family is going to be cursed. And I know that that might look very different for you. That might look like the stack of papers on your desk or uh, the, the inbox in your email that just will not die uh, just keeps growing and growing. Um, The futility that you experience in your labors, the writer's block you experience, the frustrations you experience, the tyrannical management and unjust policies of your workplace. I mean, we all have to eke out our bread uh, in the midst of thorns and thistles. Okay, what about protection? Protection. Well, just jumping forward a little, that's the next role of the man, and look what happens. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Your ability to save yourself and the family unit, the one flesh unit that flows from you, the wife is made one flesh, your children are one flesh, that is you as a man. Your family is you. And you will not be able to keep yourself or them alive. You will not be able to protect them in any ultimate sense. That is a devastating curse that every man who understands what it is to be a biblical man um, feels and knows. Because you only have so many resources And you put all those forward and you still can't stop death. It's this monster that lurks and just grabs whomever it wants. And you are, by and large, powerless against it in its ultimate power. Okay, so then provision and protection, the core uh, vocations of man unto his family, are equally cursed and perverted. So he is beholden and accountable to death. Now you can see how Christ reverses all of this and, and how important then Mary is in terms of the woman. That's why, in, in, again, in Revelation 12, the woman is pictured in heaven with a crown of stars and the moon under her feet. Do you remember where also St. Paul says that um, she will be saved? He's talking about women. She will be saved if she continues in childbearing, childrearing. These These are the primary vocational calls to which God calls. So to be going about your business in this life is exactly the fruit of faith in Christ. That's what Paul's connecting there. And then you see then the height and importance of Mary slash the church um, embodied in a text like, um, uh, clearly like Revelation 12, where, as I said, she's crowned with the stars and has the moon under her feet, etc. But you also see the importance of the woman and her offspring at the cross itself. Because, and if you pay really close attention to what Jesus says at the cross, like what the red letters are, not what John has interjected, but what Jesus himself says, is he says, now we know it's to Mary because John tells us, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, woman, behold your son. And then to the disciple whom he loves, which John tells us, he says, behold your mother, there's the offspring of the woman begotten by the cross. Begotten through sexuality? Nope. Because this is a different world and a different humanity and a different creation. This is a different human race. This is also then the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 where Christ is crucified upon this Lamb of God. All the sins of the world are laid. And as the, at the end of 53, he is looking down upon his offspring it's this beautiful kind of thing it defies fallen human reason and fallen human sensibilities but you have in Christ a virgin Adam and in Eve or in Mary a virgin Eve and they beget spiritual children at the foot of the cross that's what it is in an earlier chapter of Isaiah to have Christ as our everlasting father Okay, that's maybe enough there. Yeah, please.
1: Um, Pastor, I just wanted to ask about thorns and thistles yeah, and yeah. provision. Because um, presumably Adam is responsible for the spiritual direction of his wife and children, not just their you know their stomachs but um, Mm -hmm. and I was just thinking about thorns and thistles can choke out good seeds that the sower sows later and he has to (laughs) so I'm thinking if there's another if there's another dimension to this too and I totally agree with what you're saying about the order of creation being messed up. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to have a little compassion for the gray areas. When you look at Proverbs 31, the woman who buys a vineyard and she digs in it, but oh, yeah, she's yeah, yeah. still she's still submissive to her husband, and he he raises her up in the gates publicly. Yes, even though she's doing this, you know, work and yes. s- selling stuff. So, I don't know, that's a sort of a muddled question, but...
0: I-, I, think I, I think I know what you're asking, though, and feel free to interject if, if I get it totally wrong. But, yes, yeah, so think of an agrarian lifestyle. Think of having a farm. Is, is the work of the woman relegated to inside the four walls of the home? No. She goes outside of the home and works, too okay so there is you know this whole whole idea of the woman's part is inside the home and the man's part is outside the home it's kind of a general truth but it's fuzzy at the edges it's gray at the edges and there may be um, well there certainly are concrete examples of that in the scriptures as I think you were pointing out and in the life of Christians that when it comes to getting bread like the thorns and the thistles are often borne by the woman as well as the man. The key, I think, biblically, is that the man takes ultimate responsibility. He takes all ultimate responsibility for the provision and protection. Does it mean that if the, if the household is being attacked you know, by some foreign entity that the woman can't, in order to defend her children, take up whatever arms are at her disposal? Obviously, it's not ideal. But is she, I mean, is she in the wrong to do that? Of course not. Is she in the wrong to roll up her sleeves and get busy if there's a famine and we've got to eat and it's going to take both of us, right? So there's tons of gray in terms of the, how these things um, work themselves out in everyday life. The ultimate responsibility of, prov- of provision and protection lies with the husband, however that arrangement is made. Does that kind of help clarify? So, I mean, just to like in this day and age, we've got a, we've got a lot of uh, families where husband and wife work and have to make it, um, have to do that, like otherwise you can't, you can't survive. Um, I think we should say that that in and of itself is a great evil and an overturning of the family unit because where it's required for mother and father to work outside of the home, who's with the children? Somebody else. And if you're both working outside of the home just to make your ends meet, then where does that child go? into the pedagogy of the government, how's that been going for us? Real bad. Catechization of the the devil in the world. So I think we can point out the systematic issues at hand and not be judgmental about how we're all negotiating those or navigating those. Um, Of course, there are stay-at-home dads. And in that arrangement, the dad has said, I bear ultimate responsibility for the provision of this household but it makes a certain amount of sense for you, the wife, and she says, yes, I agree to do this, and I will um, stay at home and raise the children in the fear and instruction of the Lord and homeschool them so that they don't have to go off to the public school. I don't, I don't cast any judgment on that, even if that is, isn't maybe ideal. It certainly is. Uh, like, I'm not going to cast judgment on that in light of the current circumstances in which we have to exist in this culture, which is so upside down compared to um, you know, the biblical uh, realities and the realities of history in general. So I don't, yeah, don't understand me to be saying, I, and I mean, just the proof is in the pudding. My wife has, since we've had kids, worked two days a week. I've taken those days off uh, so that our kids didn't go into daycare. Um, our kids were in public school for a time, and we decided we, we have to pull them out of that. Neither she nor I are gated, really, to do homeschool. I mean, I kind of am, but (laughs) I'm kind of busy, too. So then, how's she going to do that, and how are we going to balance that? And so sending them to a Christian school has been the best option, and the congregation has graciously supported us in that. So, look, we have to navigate these really nasty circumstances. We shouldn't be quick to judge each other on how we're navigating those. Please don't understand anything I'm saying in here to, you know, be some kind of personal judgment in that regard. Um, the Bible speaks in these general and broad categories. And that's simply what I'm trying to communicate to you all as accurately as I can. Okay, any other thoughts? Any other questions? All right. Um, you know, why not? Let's I, I just let's do this real quick. Let's go over to um, 1 Corinthians. I just want you to see this right from the scriptures again. And then... Uh, This was kind of a field trip rather than a class on Proverbs. But I I do want you to see like this, like the (laughs) son. A foolish son is a ruin to his father and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. It's like a leak in your roof. It's not the good dripping of rain. It's not the soothing sounds you put on to fall asleep. It's like the sound of constant. You know, you plug one hole and there's another one. Where is it here? Too many notes in my Bible. So if somebody finds the hierarchy, I think it's in seven. Chapter 7.4 Yeah No, I think I've got the I think I've got it wrong Let me, let me do a quick Search here What is it? Is it 7.4? Did I just not go far enough? I'm sorry. I see what I've done. It looks like 1 Corinthians 11.7. And I'm sitting there thinking it's 7.11. I'm glad we went to look. That way we can correct it for the recording. The poor people online thinking they can't find it. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 11.7. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Now, let's get the full context here. We've got enough time. 11.2. Now, I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, so that's what I mean by it's woven together beautifully. And if you kind of just separate it out, God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the husband. The husband is the head of wife. Uh, Verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife, that's Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, namely her husband. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven, which, of course, carries social stigma with it. Um, basically, shaven meant shame, um, often prostitution. For if a wife were not, uh, will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So again, you see this ordering where man is the glory of God, woman is the glory of man. They're not the glory of each other. Eight, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Okay, so that the first point is obviously historical, that the woman was taken from Adam's side. Verse 9, I know this is going to just destroy all your love for romantic movies instantly. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now obviously that's true in terms of Adam and Eve, It is to be a helper fit for him, a helpmate, Nowhere is Adam described as a helper fit for the woman or a helpmate of the woman. It's asymmetrical. We've gotten that whole thing wrong with this so-called complementarianism. It's just not biblical. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, that's Garden of Eden, so man is now born of woman. And indeed we are. How blessed we are to have mothers. And what a holy and noble office motherhood is. And all things are from God. Judge for yourself, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you? So we're talking about nature itself. We're talking about the order of creation. Saying not only is this like biblical, but this also comes from nature. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? And it's kind of true even today, isn't it? Dude looks like a lady. <laughs> now, long hair, like there's the rub. Like, how long are we talking? Okay. But I think it's more like you know it when you see it. So Paul, you know, here, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him. Why? Because he, it's precisely because he looks like, ladies look. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. So here again, too, we get this glimpse of the idea of glory, that a glory is a kind of covering, a kind of emanation from. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious we have no such practice nor do the churches of God that is to say if anyone is inclined to disagree with what we've just said sorry you're out of luck because we don't we have no such practice we don't allow women to pray with their heads uncovered nor do the churches of God just the plain reading of what the text says we cannot like that, we can change our minds. It would probably be better for us to educate ourselves. When did women start stop uncovering their heads in churches?: Yeah, the 20th century. Wow. For 1950 years, the churches of God did it this way, and now suddenly we don't, because we're more enlightened or because we've been converted by the world. Good question. <laughs> Can we get your microphone? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. I was kind of going into what you were saying. Yeah. Um,
1: so especially in America, we don't practice covering our heads with um, the veils and the, um, the We don't wear that here. Yeah. Um, so how how important is um, these verses for us uh Today,
0: next I mean, Sunday is going to be Hijab Sunday. This was my uh, <laughs> it's my way of announcing it. Uh, <laughs> it's a, no, it's a great question. We we don't, and far from legislating anything, I simply want to point again. This is my job as a pastor to point out what the Word of God says. Now, if you don't think it says that, then you can prove that, and that's great. And I'll repent and everything else. But what the Word of God says is is plain, and then when did we stop following it? You find out in the 20th century, as it coincides with feminism, and who led the practice of uncovering heads in Christian churches, uh, a Jewess who rejected Christ and hated Christ and hated his church and convinced women inside of the church that this is what we must do. Now, the men in complete capitulation to their authority and office went along with it. That's their complicity, their complicity, or whatever you understand what I'm trying to say, even though that's wrong. But that's what happened in the 20th century. Okay, now how much of the head needs to be covered? That's the hijab question, and I think we can table that, because the whole point is that a woman wears a symbol of authority on her head. That is, a Christian woman acknowledges that God has set man in authority over me, and that man is under the authority of Christ. And so any sign or symbol of that is instantly better. It's kind of like, okay, well, the lights need to be on. Well, how much light? How about let's just start with some? Because there's a big difference between darkness and some light. So there's a big difference between no head coverings and no acknowledgement and some and some acknowledgement. Okay? Now, if this is the first time hearing this, I, you know, okay, fine, great. Um, go research it, dig around, look it up, see if what I've said is true, reread the Word of God, read some commentaries, take it all in, and know that I'm not going to be legislating hijabs anytime soon um, or even head coverings. My job as a pastor is not to lord it over you. My job as a pastor is to set before you what the Word of God says. The Lord be with you.